Second Peter, and we'll start at verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So far, let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we may now be ministered to by your holy word. What a precious word it is. What a good word. What an authoritative word. We thank you that you do not leave us to figure things out, but you have given us this sweet revelation, and I pray that each one of us would crave the word as newborn babes, as Peter said in his first epistle. I pray, Lord, that you would please um, give me wisdom to bring the word faithfully, and I pray that hearts would be receptive to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning I want to deal with verse 3, um, and I have three points to take, or four points actually, to take out of this. Real living, royal grant, right knowledge, and rich calling. So real living, royal grant, right knowledge, and rich calling. So the first point will be real living, and um, I'm going to the middle of the verse first, where it talks about um, giving unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. I want to first talk about what the what of what Peter is talking about. But before we get to that, I want to talk about what the bridge might be to the greeting and how to understand what's going on. Because as we move into this verse, many commentators noted that um, the link in this verse is very difficult to understand because as you see in our version, it says, according as his divine power. That is one view of the link. And what that view does is it links it with the greeting, which is kind of rare to take a greeting and then to flow out of that and say, according as, referring back to the greeting, this. And so the problem that some commentators have seen is, well, if we do that, that makes more sense with the Greek. And the Greek seems to be a problem for what follows. So they're struggling here. But the way that our version has it says this, grace and peace is multiplied according as he has done all of that so much, he will do even more. So that's the according as link that our translators chose. Another just as faithful translation from the Greek would be some versions you might have here say seeing that or considering that. And they basically break from the greeting, leave it as a greeting on its own, and now move into the body of the text. And they actually are going to say, seeing that, all these things, and then verse 5, add to your 
faith, virtue, and virtue knowledge. And so they're actually going to say this is the ground for what's coming. So those are the two different views. I actually will side with how our version has it here um, when it says according as, linking it to the greeting. And here's why. First of all, it was at one time the universally accepted interpretation. And simply just based on history, that I think makes a lot of sense. But the second reason is actually that what I think Peter is doing is he's mirroring ancient greetings from letters. Letters that would be given by benefactors, givers, like a king or a Caesar. And they see this pattern in these letters that they would give greetings from the benefactor, the Caesar, as it were. And then they would give all of the blessings he has done and move from there and saying, um, according as he has done all of this, even more may he do this. So I think Peter here is piggybacking on what we see in ancient letters. And so he's going to build here on that. He's going to say the multiplication of God's blessings to the church continue to feed us and to give us even more. And so these benefits from our benefactor, who is God, will be in the sphere, as you look at this text, in life and godliness. So that's where we're going to go. So what is this life that Peter talks about that God will multiply more grace to? We believe it is the eternal life that he has given us, the new life. He talks about that in 1 Peter, that we have been born again. We are new people. And so at the same time, as much as we talk about the new life, here we all sit in our frail old lives, in our bodies that are decaying and mortal. And so the new life has begun within, but it is ever so present now. And so Peter, I believe, is talking about us in our present condition as newborn people. And that is where he's talking. So in that sphere, the new life in the present life. You have to remember, in the Roman Empire and in those days, and for many, many generations up until really the 50s, life was extremely fragile. It was short, and it was precious to make the most of every opportunity. And even though now we live longer, by and large, and we have more comforts and better medicine, Life is still very fragile, isn't it? We just have to think of the accident we heard about. We have to remember that it is equally precious. And you know what? It's still short. You talk to the elderly, and they say commonly, I can't believe how fast it went. And so when we speak of this, eternal life, we remember that to exist and to flourish in that existence now are precious gifts from God, right? It's one thing to exist, but it's another thing to flourish as Christians. And Jesus said this about life. He says, I came that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. God doesn't want us to just live. He wants us to flourish in life, to really be blessed in that life. And so that moves us to our second point where it says godliness. Because he says life and godliness. The word godliness means reverence and loyalty to whom it is due. And he ties these two together. So godliness is a vital ingredient to flourishing. Without godliness, your life will not flourish. 
Just look at the Sermon on the Mount, right? When Jesus comes here, what are the first things he does? He gives us these makarisms, makarios in the Greek. These are blessings. Blessed are you if, blessed are you if, blessed are you if. And what are they? They are spelling out what it means to live a holy or a godly life. And he says, if you live in this way, you will be blessed. And the Greek there chimes in with the Hebrew, which means you will flourish. Life and godliness then are inseparable. And in the next verse, look at verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption, that's the opposite of life, is corruption, destruction, that is in the world through lust, which is the antithesis of godliness. And so in the next verse, he tells us what you have when you spurn these things, what you have when God does not give these things. You have corruption and you have lust. There's no flourishing in that. So what does this mean? This means that for Christianity, our life is not to be dormant, unfruitful. How many professing Christians live like the world, like nothing changed They say, I believe in Jesus, and life just goes on watching the same movies, doing the same things, no change. You're just a Christian. It's almost like you tagged a badge on your life, and that's it. That's not Christianity. New life is one whose heart beats to obey God, godliness, and to honor him that seeks to live with a clear conscience, Coram Deo, in the presence of God. To live is to be godly. To be godly is to flourish. And to flourish is joy. Jesus says so much when, if you think in John 15, when he talks about abiding in me, which means being in the life of Jesus Christ, right? Life. And he talks about bearing fruit. Look what he says this. Abide in me, he says. If ye keep my commandments, that's obedience, Ye shall abide in my love, even as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy may be full. Obedience brings joy. Godliness is the vehicle to joy. Is that what you hunger for this morning, sitting here? Joy in your Christian walk. Now, you've you got to be asking yourself as you're hearing this, this recipe for flourishing, you've got to say, how do we get there? Because so often that doesn't happen. I am so weak. I fail so miserably. I lost my cool yesterday at work. I have so much impatience. I have so much unbelief. I'm afraid of what's going on in the world, and it plagues my mind, and it seems to control me. I have such a hard time forgiving somebody who hurt me so much. Money and possessions are such a temptation for me. Comfort has such a grip on my life. There's so much sin in me. It it affects my relationships, my marriage. It affects how I parent. It affects me how I relate to my parents. I have such a hard time being content. I'm so discontent. How on earth can I ever have the strength to flourish, to be godly, How on earth can I have the strength 
to even for a moment be strong in that faith. That's the question that I believe every one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, will ask or will experience within us. You might not state it, but you wouldn't be human if you haven't thought it before. And that moves to the second point, because if that's the sphere of where we flourish, the question is how do we get there? And that moves to royal grant. So Peter begins with the divine power. The word divine is very uh, rare in the Greek, both in the Bible and in early Christian literature. You hardly find this word. It's only other uses in the Bible are in the next verse when it talks about partakers of the divine nature. And guess where? Acts 17 at Areopagus in Athens, Mars Hill, when Paul confronts the philosophers of the Greeks and he says the Godhead is not like gold. And so he talks about the divine nature of God. And so he's using a Greek term that the Greeks were very familiar with. Now, the Jews were familiar with the concept of the divine nature. They just used different terms. So Peter is using a Greek concept here, a Greek term. And I think he's doing that because he's writing to a larger audience, a broader world here. And he emphasizes in this term the divine nature, the power that contrasts with common power, our power, our strength. Peter could have simply said, look, guys, this is what you ought to do. Your new creatures live. He could have said, live in a godly way because God gives. No, he actually says divine power has given us. He raises our hearts and our minds up into the heavens to expect from God what we need. He calls you and me in our struggles to forfeit any dependence we might have on human power, to reject angelic power, because that's still too low, to go to the ultimate, to raise our hearts and our expectations to the highest, to the throne on high, to God who is in the heavens. He compels you and me to expect the flourishing life and to soar to God himself. That's what the Christian has. What a power. The word here for power is dunamis, dynamite. What a power we have from God to supply our needs. This is the power that speaks all things into, into existence. This is the power that moves nations, that raises up a Cyrus to bring Israel back into its land. This is the power that commands the winds and they obey this is the power that transforms dead hearts and brings them alive for Jesus Christ. This is the power that says, Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth. That's the power we are called to bank our hope in, in God himself. When all of your resources seem to fail, when your resolve is showing itself as bankrupt as it is, when you see the futility of looking across at friends and family, the government, to whom is the church always to flee? To the pastor, no. To each other, ultimately, no. Even the best of men 
are men at best. We go to God. That's why we always start church. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And he never forsakes the works which his hands have begun. In fact, before the church would go on the most formidable mission of announcing Christ's lordship to the ends of the world, to the pagans all over to the place, to people that were so hostile, so steeped in paganism. What does Jesus say? Does he say, well, off you go now. I gave you the message. Move it. Does he say, I've done the work. Now you just convince them about it. Does he do that? No, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. And then he says in, in Luke uh, 24, 49, he says, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But wait here in Jerusalem till you be endowed with power from on high. Divine power equips the church. Divine power is ours. The entire life of the church its sanctity, and its mission are furnished with divine power. And so it says divine power has been given to you. This is the key action in this entire verse. The word for given could almost better be translated as granted because it is such a rare word in our Bible. It's only used three times in the way it is. The only other time, again, is the next verse where it says, whereby are given unto you exceeding great and precious promises. And this one, Mark fifteen thirty four, Jesus has died and his body is requested of Josephus and he goes to his superior, Pilate. And it says in the text that Pilate granted the body of Jesus to Josephus to be buried. And so the emphasis of this rare word is one of a superior, an eminent one who bequeaths, who grants this thing. And in this case, power. God grants to you and me from his eminence, from his loftiness, power to live and to flourish. He doesn't owe us anything. We come to a sovereign God. He's not under any obligation to give us even the smallest gift. Do you think you have any claim on this life? Does God owe you his next, your next breath? I think this word granted makes us do away with any concept of God as our buddy as the church so often is tempted to make him, to degrade him, to put him across horizontal. Hey, how are you, God? I talked to him that way. No, he's God. Don't lose sight of his eminence. And it's seen so much in this word. One of my favorite verses is Isaiah fifty-seven, fifteen, where it says, For thus saith the high and the lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Let's be humble before him. Let's stoop 
before our great God. Don't come to him with some sort of a, a sense of entitlement. And notice it says, according to his divine power. I just focus on that word his for a second because we've got to ask ourselves, well, who's in view with the his divine power? I believe that Jesus Christ is specifically the focus and the locus of this divine power because this entire letter is thick with the challenge to Jesus' lordship and Peter is responding to that. He explicitly in verse 16 of chapter 1, if you look there, it says, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He uses the same word. In fact, this is huge because it shows us that for the church, the focus of our strength, you and me, our focus in God is realized in Jesus Christ. Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, he shall glorify me. For he shall receive of mine and show it unto you. So the Spirit makes us see Christ. Of the Father, Jesus said in the same chapter, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall ask in the Father in my name, he will give it to you. And so all of the power of God, all of his divine power, flows through the person. Jesus Christ. Christ is thus not the footnote of redemptive history. Christ is our redemption. And to magnify the extent of Christ's grant to the church, Peter says this. I love this. Look what he says. He has given unto us all things that pertain unto life. And godliness. In fact, in this sentence in the Greek, the all things is positioned in the front for emphasis. It's emphatic. According as all things he, the divine power, has granted unto you. All things that pertain. Don't lose sight of these all things. Think about what that means. This means that Peter wants you and me to know that Christians have not been given meager supplies. For a godly life. The divine grant. Backed by divine power. In Christ is 100%. It is total. He gives us all things. If he does so. Why would we look anywhere else? If all things are in Christ. Why go to something else? Why look for substitutes? Oh we're so tempted to do that. To put our confidence somewhere else. Aren't we? In our resolve. We think, oh, I've made a commitment. Surely I will follow through. In our intellect, surely I can reason my way into a godly life. In our emotions, I feel so strongly about this. Have you done that? Look to yourself. How has that worked for you? What is it that you lack in your pursuit of holiness? Have you settled it maybe in your mind? that you've kind of hit a plateau and surely you cannot really grow so much more because it just doesn't seem to go anywhere. What sins in your life seem to have sunk their tenacious tentacles into your heart? What doubts and discouragement, what unbelief has cast a seemingly permanent dark 
cloud over your heart? You can only answer that for yourself. But hear these words. All things have been granted unto you. Lay hold of those words. Look to Christ's provision. It is Christ who battled the darkest of trials. It is Christ who overcame the desert of famine against the devil where Adam failed in a lush garden. It is Christ who is our provision, him who never sinned, him who defeated the devil in his darkest hour, him where the curse of sin brought thorns and death. Christ would take on himself the thorns and bear them unto his own death to triumph over the curse. Our triumph, our provision is in Christ. Not in you, not in one another. It's him. And Christ is not some stingy benefactor. He does not clasp onto his provision just to dole out little bits, to give shavings of his blessings. No, Christ's hands are wide open for you and for me. Our king, he bids us come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy. Are you willing to go to him, to run to him? Oh, know this, church. The storehouses of God's mercy in Jesus Christ are flung wide open. And we just go there and receive grace upon grace. The fountains of God's mercy are gushing for the church. Jesus is everything for us. And so in the Old Testament, remember it talks so often about, behold my servant, mine elect, look to him. One of my favorite verses, I know John Piper says this is his fighter verse, is Isaiah 41, 10. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Christ, all for the church. Which leads me to the third point, right knowledge. Because as you look at the text, it says he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. That's the means through which all these things flow. It's the means by which we go to the storehouses is through the knowledge of him. We saw the same word for knowledge here in our last verse when it's the word epignosis, and I stressed last time it's a more um, emphatic word than the regular gnosis. It's one that really means to lay hold of, to acknowledge true knowledge. It's part of a genuine conversion. It's not just in your head. This is laid hold on, embraced knowledge. And I honestly believe, again, that Christ is in view here with the knowledge of him. Because if you look at verse 8, it talks about the same, the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 2, verse 20, talks again about the knowledge of Christ the Lord our Savior, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And chapter 3, verse 18, where the letter ends. The same words, but grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that's all in all three of those, four of those cases. It is epigenosis in the knowledge of him. Now think about what that means. This means that our new life began 
with knowing Christ. And it flourishes to the degree that we increase in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Knowing him more is the means to godliness. It is the vehicle by which, like I said, you go to these great storehouses of God's mercy. And that is why the early creeds and confessions of Christianity cemented in the nature and the person of Jesus Christ. Who he is must be unmistakable. We flee to him alone. Do not expect growth in your Christian life if you don't pursue Christ. You can go to very dark seasons of spiritual poverty without him. And maybe that's where you've been lately. Living in spiritual poverty because you haven't gone to Christ. Mere acts of religion won't do it. They're hollow without him. Just coming to church, reading your Bible, praying, singing, without your mind laying hold of, your heart laying hold of Christ is superfluous. We must contemplate and meditate on Jesus. It is him that waters the dry and thirsty soul. Is there any time in your life where you say, man, I thought too much of Christ? No, never is he too much. He's always more. He's eternal. And so you can never completely comprehend the incomprehensible. So there's always more of him to see. The great Puritan John Owen wrote that beholding the glory of Jesus Christ, he says is this, quote, one of the greatest privileges and advancements that believers are capable of in this world or in that which is to come. It is that whereby they are first gradually conformed unto it and then fixed in the eternal enjoyment of it. Heaven will be knowing God more, rejoicing more in God himself through Jesus Christ. Oh, to know this Jesus more, to know more of his glory, to know more of his patience, his humility, his sacrifice, his goodness, his exaltation, his power, his wisdom, his kindness, his love. Oh, one of those attributes we could spend days on plumbing the depth of. Jesus is so much. Never exchange your pursuit. Pursue him with your all. It will be the vehicle to a flourishing life. And that leads me to the fourth point, rich calling. Because notice, Peter links in the text the knowledge of him with Christ's calling. The one who has called us. It is because of this 
word calling that some commentators think, well, surely the Father must be in view here because Ephesians tells it is us, it is the Father who calls us. But as I argued earlier, the entire force of this epistle is on the knowledge of Christ, and it links explicitly the knowledge of Christ with his calling here. I don't think we can divorce the two. And we do have another example in the New Testament that clearly links the word calling to Jesus. It is in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, when Jesus says this, They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. It very clearly links the calling of Christ. And the call that is in view here, we know in theology as the effectual call. It is the inward call that effectively draws the sinner to faith in Jesus Christ. is isn't just the outward heralding call. This is the one that plants and implants faith that causes us to know him. This is the call of divine initiative, determined before the foundation of the world. And notice what it says, who called us, us, all of us, every Christian from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, apostles, laymen, pastors, Teachers, wherever you are, all Christians are part of this effectual call. Nobody is saved without it. Do you notice what Peter's doing here? It's pretty interesting. He's linking acknowledgement, which you and I do. We acknowledge as our heart embraces Christ. We embrace him by faith. But it tells us that this knowledge comes from his effectual call. It is he that has begun a good work in us, who in this verse, just like Paul says in Philippians 1.6, will perform it until the day of Christ. This is a fighter verse for the rich provisions of God. It means God finishes what he started. It means divine strength fuels the entire Christian life. There is no time the engine runs on anything else but divine provision. I think when I think of that, how this should increase our admiration and our wonder of God. Brothers and sisters, rest in the immutability of this call. It never changes. It never changes. The effectual call reminds us that our knowledge is dependent upon him. I think that's comforting. Some people can say, well, that's a threat to me and my autonomy. No, no, it's a comfort. It's a great comfort. It means it's not ultimately me that has to be the one doing this. I look to him, his provision. Again, we look upward, not across, not inward. We look to God. The divine call humbles us. It's such a vehicle to remind us of the grant like we talked about. The idea that God would call us, you and me, worms, maggots, nothing, sinners, completely undeserving, rebellious beggars who only deserved hell. That he would call us from that rebellion effectively and effectually to him. And then draws irresistibly. And then not only do that. But he then equips us with everything. All things like we looked at that are needed to flourish in life. 
that should elicit in each one of us the greatest self-abasement on one side and on the other side the highest praises of him O God beyond all praising because of what he has done who he is how this call kills works salvation it has nothing to do with me everything to do with him how this call comforts us in sorrow by his call I am his Nothing can shake that position. Even the afflictions that he is sending your way right now. Maybe this past week was heavy upon you. Like we just heard earlier in the catechism. All things must work together for my salvation. Because he loves me. They don't undermine or compromise his call. This call leads us then to the last part of the verse. The final means. Because if you look carefully at the text, it says, who has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us. And then it says in our version, to glory and virtue. The word to is dia. It's the same one as what was used for knowledge, through the knowledge. And I prefer to retain it as our margin has it. And it says by or through glory and virtue. So I would say that we should read it like it says, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us through uh, glory and virtue. What is this glory? This glory is the glory of Christ that radiates all the perfections and attributes of him. John 1.14 says this, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. How does it display itself? Full of grace and truth. Virtue, virtue. This word refers to moral excellence, to purity. If your version says goodness, it's too weak, it's too low, because in goodness we have nothing about the honorable aspect. The virtue refers to the honorable purity, the manifold achievements of Jesus Christ. The virtues of Christ are his accomplishments as they are demonstrated in his life and death and resurrection and ascension, and now his heavenly session where he reigns until he must make all his enemies his Footstools. These are the virtues of Christ. So what's Peter getting at? By linking through the knowledge, by the calling, through glory and virtue. Well, it basically means this. The fact that you and I believe flows from the very essence of God's person, his glory and his virtue. How? Notice, life and godliness of the saint are linked, or they mirror, or they reflect the glory and the virtue of Christ. You could almost lay them over each other, life and glory, godliness and virtue. And yet, if you're thinking along, you're thinking, well, Peter didn't use the same words here. So why is he using different words to link these two? I think it's because of this. Our life is derivative of his divine power. It comes from divine glory. His glory 
is intrinsic. It's part of who he is. The life of God in its very essence is glorious. Not you and me. And our godliness flows from the virtuous life of Christ. His virtue is his very nature. It is displayed in everything he does. And our godliness comes from what is intrinsic to him. For him, it is part of his essence. For us, we look to him. And that's why I think Peter uses different words and yet mirrors them, overlays them in such a way. You know what this means? This means the church must be very militant to maintain what we call the creature-creator distinction. We must never commonize God. We must always remember he is wholly other. We talk about in theology divine transcendence. God is above and beyond us, and yet in his imminence, he stoops down to be among us. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not flourishing. Maybe your soul has sold to sin. You're missing the true life. You look across at Christians and you think to yourself, they have something that I don't have. Say so you this morning, the person who's been religious but never living. Yeah, you're breathing, but you're not alive. The Bible says to seek Christ's forgiveness for your sins, to trust in him alone, you will be saved. And then Christian, all of us who are called by his grace, by divine power, remember you are a new creature. Remember underneath that calling is divine strength. Abundant provision. Remember, his calling is sure. His glory is magnificent. His virtues are unparalleled. And so go out from here this morning, church, encouraged in his hope, in his assurance, and trusting in him. Sola Deo Gloria. Amen. Let us pray. O oh Lord, God, indeed, to you be all glory because we know that you will finish what you have started. You will hold us fast. No matter the storms, the providences that have come upon us this week, Lord, they are carefully and precisely meted out by your hand. And I just pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged to go out from here in divine strength. In Jesus' name, amen.